Welcome to the CT Startup Podcast, an inside perspective on the startup ecosystem in the great state of Connecticut. I'm your host, Michael Kaufman. James McLaughlin. Eric Francis. And Dave Menard. And today we have with us Bill Crossman from Phoenix Pharma Labs, a company here at the Innovation Summit uh, where we're doing a series of podcasts. And Bill is here to tell us about uh, Phoenix and his uh, newest product, the a non-addictive opioid, which is just fascinating. So tell us a little bit about the company, Bill. Okay. Uh, it, we're a preclinical drug discovery company. So we aren't in humans yet. We're just in an animal studies. But um, we have developed a an opioid that is ve- very potent, very potent analgesic, uh, 10 to 20 times stronger than morphine, but is non-addicting. And I can talk more about that later and how it works. Uh, it's also does not cause constipation, does not cause withdrawal symptoms, and does not cause death from overdose, even at very high doses. I just want to say that when you actually uh, go public with the, uh, with the drug and you have to make commercials, there are really a lot of bad mascots for pharmaceutical companies out there. Uh, I saw one yesterday that had a bunch of, uh, it was basically like an abdominal, uh, abdominal section that was walking around for a drug. Oh yeah, I've seen that. That's, uh, you know, and then there's a little blue depressed, uh, raindrop for, <laughs> I'm just saying that you need to be very selective about your mascot yeah. when you yeah. go forward. It's a very yeah. important decision. <laughs> so, uh, so huge issue, obviously, right? I mean, this is, this is, uh, uh, an opioid, opioid that is not addictive. I right. mean, that's, that's, I mean, it kind of blows my mind. Uh, the only reason why I say that is because I know um, I have family, I have friends that have gone down that path uh, that because of the, the addiction. Um, I know it's a big issue across the country. So explain to us how you got into it. I mean, is it something that you just stumbled upon I, or was it something that was it a problem that you went out to kind of solve? Well, actually, it's, it's kind of similar to what you just described uh, because about eight years ago, we discovered that we have a close family member who is addicted to opioids. Yep. And he became addicted in uh, kind of the typical way. He was uh, injured in a serious accident and was in a lot of pain and was prescribed prescription opioids by a physician. And he became addicted. And it's a devastating addiction. And so then uh, a couple of years after that, I was introduced to uh, some members of the board of Phoenix Pharma Labs, uh, this company that had developed or was in the process of developing non-addicting opioids, and it was very synchronistic uh, because they were looking for a CEO. And um, I've had a background in uh, launching early-stage technology companies, so I joined them as CEO and uh, looking forward to bringing that drug to market so that uh, people like members of my family and, and yours mm-hmm. uh, won't end up with that problem in the future. Yeah. Now, now I know that the process of that is a long process, right? To get a drug actually into the mouths of you know the people that can take it. So, where are you in that stage? Are you halfway through a quarter of the way? Like, explain that a little bit. Well, we're preclinical. So, before you get into human clinical trials, you have to go through preclinical trials. And you're right; it's a very long process. So, you go through uh, first preclinical trials, then. Um, Phase one for safety, then phase two for efficacy, mm-hmm. and phase three, and then finally new drug approval. So it's a long process. It's extremely expensive. And consequently, we don't plan to do that on our own. Yeah. Our plan is to 
uh, right now we've achieved what we believe is a very, very compelling uh, proof of concept in animals uh, with evidence that is uh, very highly correlated with um, the similar measures in humans. And we plan to advance it to proof of concept in humans and then either at that point or before license it to a leading pharma company that has the resources to effectively take that through to the end of the new drug approval process, uh, work with the FDA, and then effectively market it uh, worldwide to uh, yeah. the, the, the place where there's a need. Mm -hmm. This is this is something that really hits home for me uh, on a personal level. Um, my father passed away three years ago, but prior to that, uh, he injured his back several several times in several different ways, uh, but he suffered from severe chronic pain. Um, and, you know, I know firsthand uh, kind of the, the effects that these these drugs have on the, on the body and the mind. Um, and talking to my father, he was very scared about the drugs because, you know, it, it's almost like a Band-Aid to some degree. It's not fixing the real root of the, the, the pain uh, and the cause of the issue. Um, so seeing kind of his concerns of, listen, yeah, these doctors are just throwing painkiller after painkiller at me, uh, you know, it, it slows you down uh, from a physical and mental standpoint. And more importantly, there's general concern, and there very well should be, of, of addiction. Um, so a lot of people who suffer from this chronic pain have really no choice. And when you are on these drugs for that long, um, it's... Not for everyone, but a lot of the time, you know, addiction's inevitable. Um, so, you know, I think this is absolutely fantastic what you're doing. Well, thank you. And um, I, I've been there. I've been on opioids and for pain for, for my back. And uh, there's a, a lot of serious side effects besides addiction, which yeah. is really the, kind of the worst one. Uh, there's a respiratory depression, which leads to death from overdose. There's uh, constipation, which can be severe and... In fact, uh, uh, about 10 years ago, the Elvis Presley's doctor finally admitted what caused Elvis Presley's death, and it was death from severe constipation caused by opioids. Wow. Yeah. So this is an opi opioid that you know, has, has the, the good intended analgesic effect, but seemingly has you know, none, of, none of the downsides. So what, what makes this opioid different, and, and how, how was that discovered or developed? Okay, well, um, all of the leading opioids in the market today bind to the mu receptor in the brain and then aggressively stimulate that receptor. And that receptor is very good at creating analgesic benefit, but it's also a receptor that creates euphoria, which leads to abuse and addiction. Mm -hmm. But there's actually three opioid receptors in the brain. There's mu and kappa and delta. So kappa is just the opposite of mu. It creates dysphoria. So it makes people feel terrible. So there are a few kappa drugs around, but they aren't prescribed because they make feel, people feel so so terrible. Uh, and then there's delta, which is neutral. It it, it doesn't uh, it, it produces some analgesia, but not a great deal. Uh, but it doesn't have any side effects. Ours is the first ever new molecular entity opioid to have high binding affinity at all three opioid receptors: mu, kappa, and delta. And then it just partially stimulates each of those receptors uh, in a much more balanced manner so that uh, the, uh, it derives analgesic potency primarily from mu and kappa. 
but it doesn't overstimulate any of those receptors to the extent that it creates the serious side effects associated with any of them, associated with, with uh, mu, such as euphoria and constipation, or with kappa, like dysphoria. All right. So is that a function of kind of the not overstimulating the mu and the kappa receptors, or is there uh, kind of a canceling out, out going on? Uh, that's interesting. There, there is both, really. Uh, there is some canceling out going on because it's actually what they call agonism antagonism. So you, you, you agonize uh, a, a receptor to stimulate it or you antagonize it to tone it down. And so there's, in, in our compound, there's both agonism and antagonism going on at the same time. So it, it, it just so happens that that works out in the right combination to achieve the benefit of potent analgesia, but without all of the serious side effects. So is this something that is naturally occurring and you're able to isolate, or did it have to be designed or engineered? Well, this goes back to research that was being conducted back in the 90s at Stanford Research Institute, SRI, uh, by our uh, person who is now our chief scientist, John Lawson, and uh, our chief neuropharmacologist, Larry Toll. The two of them worked on background technology uh, associated with this and then later left SRI and developed our compounds. There's just a lot of things like spinning through my head because it seems like a, a drug that, I mean, you may face some kind of uh, walls to get over, if I want to say that, because I, I would assume that this kind of industry is monstrous. Um, and, and it's something where, I mean, across the board, I mean, obviously, United States, one of the biggest issues is, you know, uh, prescription drugs right now. Um, and so, I mean, explain a little bit about that. I mean, have you already seen pushback? Have you, cause I mean, you talk about licensing it to a big, you know, a big, uh, pharmaceutical company. Is that because you may have to partner with one of those ones that could destroy you? I mean, cause uh, I would also assume that drugs, there's many drugs that never hit the market, never that have really right. good, you know, potentials, but never hit the market for a variety of reasons. So, I mean, how, explain to us how, how you've either faced that criticism or we already gotten over it or what? Well, it, it definitely is a disruptive uh, product and technology. And we, uh, when, when, going back to when I first joined the company about five years ago, and, um, I, I was the, the business guy. Yeah. So I, I'm not the scientist that developed it all, but I'm just the business guy. Yeah. And so I, I first um, uh, put in place uh, mechanisms to protect the, the asset, to protect the technology and so on. And then I went around and, and met with all of the leading pharmaceutical companies that have a strategic interest in pain. Uh, there aren't all that many of them uh, because they've been acquired. They've acquired one another yeah. and so on. Uh, and I went to conferences and met those folks. And uh, uh, every single one of them uh, was really, really interested in what we had. Uh, by and large, they, most of them did due diligence on our compounds, but we were preclinical, so we were early. Yeah. And nobody said anything. I, I, I don't know that it's the case, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of those large pharmaceutical companies would just like to see us disappear because yeah. we are so disruptive. Uh, but at the same time, we represent uh, both a, a, a great opportunity for one of those companies, uh, and a risk uh, if, if we go forward and, and, and they aren't part of it. Yeah. So um, we, we 
since that, we actually haven't encountered it head on. Yeah. So what about from the from the government side of it? Have you have, have I mean, obviously you have to go through FDA approval and I mean, that whole that whole um, journey. So have you got any good things from the government? They're saying, yeah, this is like, I mean, you know, I guess that whole process, right? Because if you don't have a champion within the FDA, if that doesn't really help you bring it along and everything like that. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, a lot of the uh, early studies that were done on our, our drug uh, were sponsored by the NIH, yep. okay. uh, primarily through NIDA, the National Institute for Drug Abuse. Okay. So there were a lot of studies that were done on our behalf in uh, rodents and monkeys and so on on our, our compounds. Uh, then... Uh, about uh, several years ago, uh, NIDA stopped uh, issuing opportunities to fund uh, pain drugs. So the, the, another part of the NIH, the National Institute for Neurological Disorders and Stroke, they, they award grants for pain. But okay. NIDA backed off of that, and they're focusing exclusively on addiction therapy and not pain. Uh, but... But then, uh, just not very long ago, I was at the J.P. Morgan conference in San Francisco last January, and I met with people from the NINDS, and they were very interested in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And they then uh, talked to folks at NIDA, and subsequently we had meetings with NIDA, and persuaded them to consider getting involved in issuing uh, an opportunity for a large grant, yeah. uh, several million dollars, three or four million dollars. Uh, so NIDA now has offered to do a study for us called an ICSS, an intracranial self-stimulation study. Now, I, I can talk about some studies that we've done uh, that are quite similar to that, mm-hmm. but this is one that they particularly like, and uh, it's one where they, like a self-administration study that we've conducted, they, they train rodents to select uh, morphine or saline or or our compound, and then they measure the behavior, at, which measures the level of euphoria produced by the, the compound. The um, if uh, NIDA has, has said that if we are successful in this ICSS study, which we have high confidence that we will be, that they will, for the first time in a long time, issue an opportunity grant for pain for non-addictive opioid pain. Uh, so we're looking forward to doing that very, very shortly. Uh, also, we um, a while back, we submitted an a application for a grant from the U.S. Army. Now, the, way, yeah. it, the U.S. Army has something they call a BAA, a Broad Area Announcement, where they put out a wish list to the world of, of all of the technologies that they would like to see, uh, whether it's missile technology or, yeah. or biotech technology or whatever. And one of the things identified was uh, an, an improved analgesic that was non-indicted. Yeah. So we submitted a, a pre-proposal, and the way it works is you submit a pre-proposal, uh, which is much more than it sounds. It's like <laughs> yeah, a, it's, it's a huge one. <laughs> like a 35-page document. And we described what our compounds do. And then if, you, if they like that, then they invite you to uh, submit uh, a full application which we were invited to do, and we uh, submitted a, an application which was 136 pages long uh, for, for a $4 million grant from 
the or $3.6 million grant from the U.S. Army Medical Research and Material Command. Um, and we've been in contact with them. We uh, our, our, our application has actually completed the approval process, mm-hmm. so it's there waiting to be funded. But then the DOD was affected by the sequestration of the U.S. government budget. And NIH was also uh, seriously uh, impacted by the sequestration. So a billion dollars was cut out of the NIH budget. And within the DOD, applications for grants like, like ours have to compete with all of the other interests in the DOD. And so that's difficult to do, but nevertheless, we're doing it. So the, yeah. the U.S. Army Medical Research Material Command is, is um, uh, weighing one opportunity against another, and we're in the queue. And hopefully, uh, we'll uh, receive a grant from them soon. So what's next in your in your strategy? So you've gotten you might do these additional research uh, projects, and you've done some already. What brings you to the next level where you actually submit the drug to the FDA for approval? Well, first we we have uh, effectively de-risked the asset. So one of the pharmaceutical companies that we met with suggested that we uh, do all of the preclinical studies, all of the studies in animals, and all of the in vitro studies that would remove risk from the asset, that would make it less risky to take forward in through the FDA process. Uh, so, for example, you know, o- opioids are, are very well understood. There's a lot of longitudinal data on, on opioids. So you know that o- there's no risk of an opioid causing a heart attack or, or cancer or something like that. But an opioid can precipitate what's called long QT syndrome, which is where the electric signals to the heart get mixed up and it, the heart just stops beating. And I understand that very well because I have a daughter who has long QT syndrome, you know, and she wears an implantable cardiac defibrillator as a result. Uh, so we did a, what's called a HERG assay, which measured the potential for our drug to precipitate long QT syndrome. And the test was successful, and our drug does not. So that eliminated that risk. Um, so we, we've gone through all of that, and for anybody that truly understands opioids, they would recognize that, that we've done everything possible in animals to, to eliminate those risks. Uh, but we, we haven't done the 28-day toxicology study in dogs, for example, or cardiology study in dogs, because that, that really isn't, isn't scientifically relevant at this point. So mm-hmm. somebody that may be interested in license, licensing our compound would be interested in what we have, they really wouldn't be so interested in the rest of the uh, preclinical studies. But nevertheless, we are advancing it forward. So we are doing those other preclinical studies in order to get to what's called an IND, an introductory new drug approval from the FDA, which allows you to then go into humans. Um, So then you you go into phase one for, for safety and phase two for efficacy. Now, our plan is actually to do phase one and phase two trials simultaneously, which is permitted in Australia. So in a number of companies, including a, a lot of big pharma companies, are, are going that route. They're going to Australia where, where simultaneous phase one, phase two can be done relatively quickly to get to proof of concept in, in humans mm-hmm. uh, within a period of about nine months to a year from the time you, you, you start in human trials. And, and also there are some, some lucrative incentives from 
the Australian government for, for doing that. Great. And so, Bill, what was your background before getting into Phoenix? Well, I had a, a, a corporate background uh, with uh, Connecticut companies. Uh, first, a company called Mormon Cormac Resources uh, in Stanford, which uh, at the time was, it, it was a uh, uh, shipping and mining company, which at the time was a Fortune 500 company. Uh, and later on, that that company was broken up into, into different businesses, and I moved on to United Technologies, and eventually uh, I was uh, CFO of Otis Elevators uh, Asia-Pacific Operations, uh, headquartered in Singapore. And after that, I, after leaving United Technologies, I uh, started my own business, uh, consulting in uh, uh, process development, uh, business process improvement, uh, those sorts of, sorts of things, and then got involved in just launching early stage technology companies. So for the past 17 years or so, I've been launching uh, a company, early stage companies that are involved in all kinds of different technologies, everything from um, industrial technologies to nanotechnology to software to now biotech. That's great. And so what, uh, what were you hoping to get out of the Innovation Summit today? Well, I, I actually I've been working with a, a Connecticut organization uh, called SecTech. Uh, they're uh, a small group of very, very experienced people in the pharmaceutical industry that help companies like ours in the biotech industry to move forward. I've, I've been working with them for about a year now, and uh, one of the... One of the issues I've been uh, dealing with is is whether or not to um, start a Series A uh, institutional funding round mm -hmm. because we have these various government grant opportunities that are hopefully out there waiting for us. We also have uh, there are uh, there are a number of organizations, uh, most of whom I can't name because of confidentiality agreements. Uh, but there's a number of organizations that are studying our drugs uh, for a number of different things that, um, uh, and I, I can name a couple. So I, I mentioned uh, NIDA uh, with mm -hmm. the NIH. Uh, also, Rockefeller University uh, is studying our compound for uh, addiction therapy, both opioid, opioid addiction and cocaine addiction. Uh, there are other groups that are studying it for different things. So there's a lot of activity uh, amongst uh, pharma companies, uh, uh, government organizations, etc., that are studying our drugs. And so uh, the question is whether uh, those various things that are going on will result in either grant funding or a license deal or an acquisition or whatever uh, relatively soon or whether we are going to have to fund uh, a lot of the progress through the FDA approval ourselves. So we've decided that um, we are going to do a relatively small uh, Series A round of about $2 million, just so mm -hmm. we can keep pushing forward. And um, I'm looking forward to meeting with some folks from Connecticut Innovations to, um, to discuss that. Now, actually, we're, our company right now is headquartered in Utah. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a Connecticut resident, uh, which is one of the qualifications for, for <laughs> Connecticut Innovations funding. Uh, but 
also we would need to move our headquarters to Connecticut. And we're seriously considering uh, doing that as well as moving some of the um, uh, the services uh, that, that we uh, uh, contract for to uh, Connecticut organizations. That sounds like an exciting opportunity for Connecticut. Uh, I, I, I can't speak on behalf of uh, my co-hosts, but certainly they've already said this, but I should add that I... Uh, my wife is a social worker. She deals with uh, opioid addiction all the time. Um, and there is no uh, sector of society that escapes from it. Uh, and so the, the product that you're working on uh, is not only disruptive, but it could be essential. Uh, yes. And so I, I think that's wonderful. So being a Connecticut resident, um, having spent a large, presumably a large part of your professional career in, in Connecticut and, and kind of being knowledgeable about uh, the startup scene here in the state, uh, you know, aside from the CI uh, possibility, um, you know, what is it about the Connecticut startup economy um, that you view as a- advantageous for, for for a pharmaceutical company like yours? Uh, and and you know, what are some some of the uh, issues within the state that might give you pause from from moving from Utah? Well, uh, one very positive thing is that Connecticut happens to be located on the East Coast, and uh, the Essentially, most biotech development uh, and pharmaceutical development is done either on the West Coast or the East Coast. So, being in Connecticut in the uh, uh, in the I ninety five corridor is uh, a good place to be, a significantly better place to be than than Utah. Because uh, when people fund uh, companies, they they like to have board meetings nearby rather than flying to the middle of the country to do it. So, so uh, that's very helpful. Um, uh, I, I have seen um, Connecticut uh, go through uh, cycles of um, being very supportive of early stage uh, business development to being not so supportive. And now I, I've seen it come back, essentially, to, to being much more supportive. Uh, as uh, Governor Malloy mentioned in his uh, keynote address this morning, uh, there's been a lot of focus on on trying to do that, and I believe that it's, it's been successful. I, I think that uh, uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, Connecticut is drawing uh, technology to the state, uh, not not as much in biotech as in other other areas uh, like uh, software and media and so on. Uh, but it is it is happening in biotech as well. So um, uh, we're seriously uh, considering and hoping to be part of that biotech development in the state. We've, we've essentially, through um, CI and through uh, SecTech, uh, we've been offered uh, free lab space at either UConn or Yale, which is attractive. We, we, we currently have free lab space at Utah State University, but I think uh, being in, in an environment like uh, UConn or, or Yale, where there's a very serious science going on, I think would be uh, very beneficial. Now, is there a state that you would, if you didn't come to Connecticut, that you'd go to? Do you have like a backup or you're just 100% on Connecticut, which is... That <laughs> well, there's, uh, we, we've certainly been encouraged to move to Silicon Valley, where there's Obviously. a lot of biotech development. Uh, uh, they're definitely a safety state. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> definitely. You get yeah. too crowded over there. There's too many people. <laughs> I never even heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, our, our uh, general counsel happens to be located in uh, Silicon Valley, and he, he's been saying, oh, you got to move out of Utah and come to California. But actually, uh, I've, I've worked a lot with uh, 
Connecticut law firms, and uh, there's a good uh, Connecticut law firms that could be our general counsel as well. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> we, we, we don't know any of those, but... Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so if all goes according to plan, when will this... Uh, when will this be ready for market? If everything goes according to plan, uh, it it would. I'm sure it w- when it gets to the right point, uh, I'm pretty sure that the FDA would fast track this drug for moving through FDA trials more quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the case, it could be on the market in three or four years. Uh, that's that's optimistic. Uh, you know, yeah. sometimes it takes. Much longer. It, it all depends on what happens in trials and, and so on. Well, yeah, I don't think it can come uh, fast enough. Um, yeah, no. I, I, I had some experience with the FDA on my past startup. It wasn't the most enjoyable experience. I had a, one quick question, and it took about 14 hours for them to answer the phone. Uh, and it was about 12 seconds. It was the question, and they said, uh, yeah. And I was like, okay, fantastic. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I can imagine that this is definitely something that they, they'd put on the fast track in the left lane and, and hopefully get you guys out there as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, we, we also have the benefit of having uh, some, some very, very good uh, people on our scientific mm-hmm. board of uh, advisors. That uh, uh, People like uh, Mary Jean Creek from the Rockefeller University, who is uh, regarded as the foremost authority on addictive diseases, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, uh, Various scientists around the country that are uh, very supportive of, of us and, and believe in what we are doing and, and want to help. So, Bill, let me take it away from your company for a moment. Uh, what has you excited about technology or tech companies that you've seen or things that are changing in the marketplace? Well, I've had the, the early stage technology company bug for a long time. <laughs> And uh, it, it seems like uh, every time I, I finish with one uh, project, I, I get drawn back into a, a, a similar situation in, in a different space. So um, the, um, I, I guess you know, it, it's kind of an adrenaline rush to, to launch a, an early-stage technology mm-hmm. company, uh, get people interested, get funding, and move it forward. And I, I just love doing it. That's great. And if you could pass, you certainly have plenty of experience, so if you could pass on one pearl of wisdom to entrepreneurs that may be listening to this podcast. Okay, well, certainly one thing is uh, um, concerns intellectual property protection. So everybody thinks about patents as being uh, you know, extremely valuable, and, and they certainly are. But what I've discovered is that what is even more valuable than a patent is a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement. Uh, I've actually been involved in three different situations with companies where our intellectual property was in the process of being stolen. There were actually people stealing our technology, taking it overseas, and ready to rip us off. And uh, in each case, we stopped them dead cold, not because of our patents, but because we had non-disclosure agreements with them. So I'm a firm believer in, in uh, doing that and getting everybody signed up to them in marking our uh, materials confidential and using that as a mechanism to, to protect our intellectual property. We certainly also have um, uh, important patents. Uh, Cantor Colburn uh, here in Connecticut is our 
mm-hmm. uh, IP law firm. Uh, they've done an excellent job in, in uh, advancing a, a number of our patents. And we earlier this year, we just received uh, approval on a key patent uh, that is our composition of matter and um, methods of manufacture and use patent on our lead compound. So that, that is very important. And uh, I don't mean to uh, diminish the importance of patents. They certainly are uh, essential. But along with that, uh, the, the, the tool that people seem to forget about is, is uh, non-disclosure agreements. Uh, another point that I, I would bring up is that uh, a lot of times early stage technology companies uh, will, will get a patent, will apply for a patent in the U.S., but they will do so without getting a PCT, a, uh, uh, a, a patent a, cooperation pa- treaty, patent yeah. cooperation treaty yeah. uh, which allows you uh, to essentially have a uh, holding spot uh, to then later on uh, internationalize your patent. So we, we have now gotten to the point that we uh, have reached that point. We are in la- internationalizing our, our patent in all of the com- countries that we named which are all of the important countries around the world, but we never would have had that opportunity if we hadn't filed a PCT when we filed our first patent application. That's, uh, that's very interesting. The uh, people, it's also, you know, people need to learn more about what intellectual property consists of. There's sort of a, outside of the biotech area, there's, there's a general desire by most young tech companies to get a patent. They just say, oh, okay, I, I have an idea, now I want to patent it. But many ideas are not good for patents, They're, but they are protectable in a number of other ways. It would be whether it be uh, trade, whether it becomes a trade secret, or uh, you know, uh, trade secret, or you use your non-disclosure agreements and keep things confidential and so on. Um, you know, it's good to definitely talk to a firm like Cantor Colburn if, uh, if any firm is going to proceed in that area. Uh, great, gentlemen. Any other questions for? No, I mean, I mean, this is a, a noble, a noble path you're taking. <laughs> it's a very noble path, uh, but I, I, the mountain is still tall, so you yes. still need to, uh, you know, climb up that mountain. So, good luck on that journey. Absolutely, I appreciate it. Yeah, cool. very exciting idea. Thank you so much for sharing your thank time you. with us. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. All You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Kevin Dobis, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Martha Kawana, LLP.